Welcome to the Policy in Plainer English podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. This season, we've been exploring what health professionals can learn from food professionals about how to change our diet and do it in a way that keeps our pleasure in what we eat. There are many reasons why people would want or need to shift their eating patterns, and we've been talking about the example of an impaired sense of smell, something that would profoundly change how we experience food. This episode will be airing in the last week of December, the traditional time for podcasts to pause and look back on what's been discussed in 2021. Instead, we're pausing to consider what we didn't discuss in 2021. Our conversation so far has been focused on skill transfers going one direction, from the professional to the personal, borrowing from the food experts world to influence what goes on our own plates. Today, we're taking a brief detour in the opposite direction. We're setting aside what an individual might put on their table at home to delve into commercial-scale food production. Dale Conascenti, who appeared in the last episode, provided a snapshot of what that commercial production world looks like. My name is Dale Conascenti. I am a research chef. I am certified by an organization called the Research Chefs Association. It means that I have experience as a chef and that I've actually worked in the industry as a chef, whether that be a hotel, a restaurant, my own restaurant, or some other food industry background. And also that I have science. I'm certified in science, which means that I understand the science of food, I understand microbiology, I understand equipment, um, and I understand formulation, and also I have experience in production. Dale is bringing together two skill sets. He can produce a food that tastes great, and also he can figure out how to make it taste that way when you're producing thousands, millions of servings which is not accomplished by taking an eight-serving recipe off the internet and replicating it times a thousand. There is no recipe, and you don't replicate. You build for a thousand from the beginning. Here, Dale answers my question about some of the challenges in creating the perfect cookie dough for cookie dough ice cream. Yeah, so this is an interesting question that you ask, because say you're eating a frozen piece of cookie dough, or you're eating a piece of cookie dough in ice cream, you would say, well, this tastes like cookie dough. But the actual development of that product is different than actually making a batter for a cookie dough. Because, you know, in a large scale, you have to be able to mix this product, which in some ways you can say, well, that's an easy part, but it's really not because there's a consistency that the dough needs to be once it's mixed it's actually going to another mixing step when the product is extruded. So once we mix the product, say it's a cookie dough, we mix that, then we lift it up and put it into a big piece of machinery that will extrude it through a specific size holes. And then we'll cut that and it will fall onto a minus, could be minus 80, anywhere minus 80, minus 100 degrees. Fahrenheit. And so mixing it correctly and then depositing it, the consistency of the dough has to be very specific. If it's not, it won't extrude, either it'll be too thick or it will be overmixed. And when it's extruded, it will turn into just a soft mess and it won't cut very defined size, what we call pellets. 
you know, it could be anywhere from three quarter of an inch to a half inch in diameter and three eighths of an inch long. So that dough, there's a lot of work that goes into the formulation of that product, not only just to taste good, but for it to be able to function. The ability to make food that tastes good and can also go through a manufacturing process is a key part of creating our food environment. We're surrounded by the results of development work by research chefs like Dale. This is the kind of crazy stuff I think about all the time. And, you know, when I go into a grocery store and I walk around, I, I just think about, oh my goodness, like, I know, like that cracker, I know how that cracker was made and how in-depth the development for that is and the equipment you have to use to make it or that ice cream. You eat the ice cream, you take it for granted. You have no idea, like, how many layers of development have happened to get that nut in there, to get that cake piece in there, get that cookie dough piece in there, the flavoring, all of that. As a consumer, you kind of take brand. But for me, I'm looking at those products and I'm thinking about that all the time. It's not just the grocery aisle. As Roy DeRocha discussed in the second episode, when we talk about food, we're really talking about the whole world of sensory perception, how we interact with and understand our environment. Arthur D. Little was the company that back in the 1940s created the first objective descriptive tasting methods. And it was a method called the flavor profile method. It has been used around the world since the 1940s to, to do two things, to develop nutritional products that people will actually eat, uh, but also to flavor medicines so that people will comply with doctor's orders and, and take their medicines. Arthur D. Little's trained sensory analysts then went on to do plenty of work in food, but they've also tackled projects like designing a better kitty litter, removing off odors from new refrigerators, and have even helped diagnose metabolic disorders that produce odors through certain amino acids. In Dale's skill set, it's not only the equipment design and formulations that support commercial production. The chef experience also speaks to scale. One of the distinguishing characteristics of a chef versus an excellent home cook is that while the excellent home cook can create a delicious meal, the chef can create hundreds of the same meal night after night. We alluded to the chef's skill set in our episode on medically tailored meals. Medically tailored meals are a treatment-focused food program. They provide a majority of a patient's daily nutrition needs through meals that follow specific criteria based on an individual's medical condition. That requires the skills to produce a high volume of food, ensure everyone receives meals that meet their specific medical needs, and do so in a way that tastes delicious. It's an expert skill level. That's been one of the barriers to expanding these programs, as many current community meals rely heavily, sometimes exclusively, on volunteer labor. Here's David Waters, CEO of Community Servings in Boston, speaking back in Season 3 about his Medically Tailored Meals program. Medically Tailored Meals in action, how do you actually create that? So in the context of food itself and, our, and preparation of meals, there's, there's two key learnings. The first is that sick people have no appetite. So if we bring them institutional food, like we often think of when we think of large feeding programs, they're not gonna eat it because they're already nauseous from chemo treatments, they're struggling with depression, they have complex medical needs, they may have GI issues. So the food really has to be beautiful because our first challenge is just overcoming the barrier to get someone to eat the food we provide. So to us, as food professionals, that means local ingredients, whole ingredients, beautifully prepared food, culturally appropriate food for the communities that we serve. 
really trying to bring not fancy food, but the comfort food that your grandmother made in your own culture. And that's more likely to motivate any of us to eat if it's like, oh my God, it's the cornbread my, my mother made or the beans and rice uh, my grandmother made, that kind of thing. But then it's about all of our patients have uh, dietary restrictions and the majority of patients, 72%, have more than one comorbidity. So they have more than one health issue that is impacting their diet. So I always say, my best friend has diabetes that's led to kidney failure, blindness, inability to walk, isolation, uh, strokes, heart attacks, et cetera. He needs a diet that controls for glucose, potassium, phosphorus, vitamin K, and sodium. Almost none of us, unless you're an RDN, could go to your local market tonight and plan that diet. That's the intervention that community servings offers, is to be able to do that multi-layering of medical diets so that much like a prescription, we're bringing you exactly what your doctor needs you to eat if you're unable to do it on your own. Community Servings provides meals at home. Another place where we see a similar skill set is in food service at hospitals themselves. There's a movement to ensure the food served in a healthcare setting mimics the type of thoughtful, delicious food we hope everyone can enjoy every day to support good health. Leah Pryor, who we heard from last episode, is part of that work at UVM Medical Center, which has been both a local and national leader in these efforts. They not only transform their menus inside the hospital, they transform the grounds outside to include features like a garden to share with the community. We do a lot of gardening for health. So we have our learning garden programming, which Lisa Hoare, our garden educator, runs with, a, with Marianne Ludlow and Jessica Fisher, as well as Gretchen Berry. So these are just some of our dietitians that we work with. That program's been around, I think this was the ninth season. That is a great program where novice gardeners get to learn how to garden, um, kind of get more confident with their green thumb, as well as getting a nutritional or a nutrition-based education alongside that. Then we have Gardening for Health, which is also led by Lisa Hoare, but then with um, Mike Latre, who is the doctor. And that is actually kind of an interesting pairing of the garden educator and the doctor. So getting the doctor into the gardens with their patients and really learning the benefits of why growing our food is so important and how that can actually have a wonderful benefit to your health in general. We see similar trends in other settings that might once have been dismissed as offering only dismal institutional food. For example, we have the Vermont First program that works within the food service company Sedexo to source local foods for campus dining. They bring scale to healthy foods at two levels, providing meals to thousands of students in dining halls, and also working with local farmers to help them meet the wholesale specifications of a larger buyer in a way that makes sense for their farm business. So, here we have many examples of people with different skill sets that correspond to producing good food at scale. This podcast season explores what the rest of us can learn from those people to shape our own diets. But what about going in the other direction? What if you're someone keenly in tune with what food brings you pleasure as an individual, and you want to try scaling your ideas up to a commercial level? Somebody's tried that. Well, lots of somebody's have tried that, but one of them made a podcast about it. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Spaghetti sucks. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Oh. 
Oh, it's going to get real tonight. Don't you worry. There are a lot of pasta shapes out there. Frankly, I think a lot of them have issues. For years, I've dreamed of trying to do better. So on March 1st, we are embarking on a quest. I am setting out on a mission to invent a new pasta shape. That's Dan Pashman from the podcast The Sporkful, introducing a special series, Mission Impossible. And I'm not just trying to invent a new shape. I want to actually get it made and actually sell it. Dan begins with his own version of the flavored leader principles. Remember the Arthur D. Little system from our conversation with Roy? There were five principles. Immediate flavor impact, balance and fullness, compatible mouthfeel, off notes, and aftertaste. Dan has his own theory about the three principles that define pasta shapes. And I love pasta. So over my many years and likely thousands of pounds of pasta consumed, I've put a lot of thought into what makes some pasta shapes better than others. In fact, I've actually come up with three criteria by which I believe all pasta shapes should be judged. Ready? Number one, forkability. 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 Yeah, that's right. We got sound effects. That's how important this part is. Forkability. How easy is it to get the pasta on your fork and keep it there? Number two, sauceability. 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 How readily does sauce adhere to the shape? Number three, the most important of all, tooth sinkability. Tooth sinkability. Tooth sinkability. How satisfying is it to sink your teeth into it? My apologies to Roy that his flavored leader principles lacked sound effects. Dan also wasn't afraid of casting a wide net of experience to get to the heart of what really defines the things that make a pasta shape more or less satisfying. I need help from someone who approaches pasta from a non-traditional perspective. Someone who can help me think about things a little differently. Yes, Georges Legendre. I am an architect and an academic. George has an architecture office in London, and he teaches at Harvard. Most important for our purposes, he wrote a book called Pasta by Design, in which he analyzes pasta shapes through the lens of design and architecture. Each page has a different shape, rendered like an architectural drawing, with complex math equations that describe it. In other words, he's not a chef, or a historian, or even Italian. He's an outsider in the world of pasta, just like me. Dan didn't hesitate to revisit what he thought he knew about his favorite food in the interest of understanding it better. I have a new assignment. It comes from my pasta fairy godmother, Evan Kleiman, host of the public radio show and podcast Good Food and expert on Italian cuisine. Go to the store and buy every box of pasta of a different shape you can. Bring them all home and look at the however, 50 boxes, 60 boxes. Evan says, try all the shapes you can find and look for patterns. So far, so good. This resembles explorations our previous guests have talked us through. It's also similar to what Dan does in his own show, The Sporkful, experimenting with food in search of the best eating experience. Then, Dan goes a step further. He's taking these concepts all the way to pasta production and retail sales. The dough is pushed down through the dye. Remember the Play-Doh factory where you push the dough through the star-shaped insert and it comes out shaped like a star? That star-shaped disc is the die. Steve walks me over to the dies. They're a row of solid bronze discs, very heavy, about the size of extra-thick manhole covers. Each die has about 100 holes that the dough goes through at once, so they can push out a bunch of rigatonis or whatever at a time. The larger the disc, the more holes in it, the more pasta you can make at once. Steve says the really huge companies that do 10,000 pounds an hour, their dies are the size of jet engines. 
pretty exciting to hold a pasta dye, to think that one day I'll have a dye that's the only one like it in the world, the key that unlocks a shape that I invented. The full Mission Impossible series inspired me enough that I now own a home pasta extruder. I host pasta extruder parties like my grandmother's generation might have hosted Tupperware parties. But unlike Dan Pashman, I'm fine keeping this at a hobby level. So why this detour into thinking about how we provide food at scale? Because talking about all the people skilled at scaling up our food aspirations is the most optimistic and constructive way to contemplate just how big a problem we're dealing with when we consider the intersection of food, diet, and health. If we look at diet as part of prevention, we see that according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, 90% of adults in the U.S. don't consume enough daily fruits and vegetables to support good health. Many, if not most, adults have moved past the prevention stage to develop clinical indications of compromised health connected to low-quality diet. Chronic, diet-related conditions accounted for more than half of deaths in the U.S. in 2018, and in recent years, these conditions made patients 12 times more likely to die after contracting COVID-19. Again, this is based on CDC data. That's not even getting into what we've been exploring this season around modifying diet in response to changing life stages and situations. Here's nutritionist Chris Moldovan, who we'll hear from later in the series, talking about changes that happen as we age. An individual will find that maybe they have taste changes related to uh, the aging process, but it might be related to multiple medications or supplements that they're taking. The sense of smell is going to be decreased as we age. Gradually, often this happens uh, at a pace that's not necessarily discernible or noticeable right away, but over time can play a big impact on how someone senses and feels about their food. Uh, they might find that the digestive process has changed a bit in their bodies. Maybe they have reflux or they're not able to tolerate certain foods without gastrointestinal issues. Maybe they have problems with their dentition. They could have dentures or ill-fitting dentures, or maybe they have teeth with decay or, or loss of teeth that they're not able to chew, and um, therefore they don't enjoy the meals as much. They could have dry mouth related to, again, medications or an illness, which again can lead to you know discomfort and not an enjoyable sensation eating uh, as it once was. And so all of those types of changes that happen over time can lead to changes in individuals' intakes. Oftentimes, these changes can lead to risk for malnutrition. If certain food groups are left out, if certain um, meals are no longer prepared, if a person is not getting a wide variety of uh, food items, like different fruits and vegetables that provide different vitamins and minerals, different protein sources, or protein in general, is often left out, it's expensive, it's hard to prepare, it's cumbersome, and it might be not as palatable to somebody who's aging. Don't worry, in the full interview, Chris will get to some positive steps we can take to avoid poor nutrition, and I'll recommend my favorite cookbook, which is The Pleasures of Cooking for One by Judith Jones. The point is that we're talking about everybody. Integrating food into health and healthcare needs to reach everybody. And here's the tricky part, we need to both reach everybody and do it within a system that allows some level of individualization, like we've been discussing this season around designing diets that succeed both by health indicators and by the measure of people wanting to eat them. These types of everyone goals, the kind that blend individualization with the broadest possible reach, aren't unusual in healthcare. 
Vermont has the goal of everyone being connected to a primary care provider, everyone coming in to see that provider regularly for both current health issues and preventive care. And then within those visits, the individualization for a personal health plan can occur. As part of the thinking behind Federally Qualified Health Centers, or FQHCs, the federal government outlines expectations around providing comprehensive primary care to everyone in a region and sets up a funding system to ensure that it's possible to offer this standard of care, even in rural places where there wouldn't otherwise be enough patients to support that level of access. We could outline similar examples in food policy. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's nutrition programs have a goal of ending hunger and obesity, including through entitlement programs. This structure of program offers blanket eligibility for children and anyone at a certain income level to receive, in USDA's words, access to food, a healthful diet, and nutrition education in a way that supports American agriculture and inspires public confidence. Yes, that's my husband doing voiceovers again. Neither system is even close to perfect, but they were at least built with the right kind of scaling in mind, reaching everyone and allowing for individualization. When faced with the task of joining these two complex goal sets, healthcare and food, we've run into issues right out of the gate around how to frame solutions. Often programs begin with addressing one particular aspect of the system and leave asking how it's going to scale for later. A strategy that might have worked if later never arrived. But later is now. This summer, the Government Accountability Office called the federal government to task for failing to coordinate an effective response to diet-related chronic disease, pointing to 200 efforts currently fragmented across 21 agencies. In an article published this fall, the Gretchen Swanson Institute, which provides technical assistance to nutrition incentive programs, explained how they fundamentally lack the tools to bring successful models to scale, starting with not knowing which models are successful. In a preface to the article, the Institute wrote, Currently, there is no shared evaluation model for the hundreds of financial incentive projects across the United States, despite the fact that a majority of these projects are federally funded and united as a cohort of grantees. It's unclear which models and attributes have the greatest public health impact. This is a failure to set the preconditions for scaling up. Supporting individualization has also struggled. We often see food and health portrayed only as an issue of access to nutritious food, which is already a limited perspective. When we look closer at the category of access, there are more limits. For example, our food system provides all sorts of options for acquiring food, from grocery chains to country stores to farmers markets and CSAs. When you pay for food with cash, it works in all those places. When you pay for food using a nutrition incentive program, it often only works in one type of location like farmer's markets participating in crop cash. And don't get me wrong, it was an accomplishment to coordinate across those farmer's markets. Now, we're asking who can take the next step and coordinate between different types of food sellers, allowing an individual to choose the access points that work for them. So, to help us all think bigger, we have this special episode on scaling and a recommendation for Mission Impossible, a podcast about one man's quixotic pasta quest. It's a story of noodle enthusiasm, learning to think at scale, and collecting a team of people with the right skills to turn a dream into reality. Today, pasta, tomorrow, transformation of the food system. If this were a class, the next assignment would be to go back to the introduction to the season with Dr. Shantanu Nundi and review how he's thinking about systems that reach everyone while also supporting greater individualization within healthcare.
That's a lot of listening and a lot to think about ahead of 2022, when we'll return with the final episodes in this season of the Policy in Plainer English podcast. This season of Policy in Plainer English is supported by a grant from HRSA and the Northern Border Regional Commission. Find out more in our show notes at plainerenglish.org.